You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Church family, good to see you here this evening. Hope you're doing well. Glad you're with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you again, if you're a guest among us, I want to welcome you, just as Dane says. So glad you're here. Uh, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful that uh, we're here together this evening. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, is where we're going to land here. As Dane said, we are continuing our trek through our DNA series, looking at the mission, vision, and values of Northway Church. And we're in week eight of that. We've seen our mission, our vision, and now we're six values in. And the value that we're going to look at this week is a pretty significant one. It's in many ways the glue that holds us together. It's the value of unity. And uh, quite simply put, that uh, here at Northway, we value the idea that we, we are here to preserve our unity in Christ as we honor our diversity. That's the hope, that's the anchor. And uh, like all of these other values, they undergird the mission of glorifying God and making disciples. And uh, when it comes to unity, unity is so significant because the truth is, is we don't have to turn very far before we come to a very real realization of the divides and the fractures that are ever around us, that are ever amongst us. Um, this year is one of those years. It's every four years we get an election cycle and presidency and we watch the polarization uh, take place like none other in our country as we see this Democratic-Republican divide and all the rhetoric therein and who's claiming this side and this side and the infighting. And, and that's not just something that's out there. I mean, I, I see it all the time, even within our body of trying to, where do we gain ground politically? And you see political disunity, political division uh, that's around us. And uh, this year, again, is a big one for that. You, you don't even have to go nationally, though. You can just look around us in Dallas. Just even in the context we find ourselves here in Northwest Dallas is just very clear divisions around us. We have socioeconomic divides that are around us. You can literally go out this door um, and head east right here, and you are in some of the wealthiest Homes and, and subdivisions in all of Dallas are right out here. And then you can literally walk out this door and step right across the street of Marsh and you're in some of the imp most impoverished communities in all of Dallas. And we find ourselves strategically placed right here in the middle, right between the two. And you see this divide that is so radically different amongst us. You have a, a ethnic divides that are deep within uh, not only our culture, but specifically here in Dallas. I mean, praise God that we are not where we once were when it comes to the, some of the racial history we've seen, but we are still not where we need to be. And in fact, I mean, the, the roots go so deep in Dallas. You think about the origin of ethnic divide in this city in the 1920s. We held the largest chapter in the entire United States of the Ku Klux Klan right here in Dallas. And in fact, to go join the KKK, you had to go down to Fair Park and you had to bring with you a letter of recommendation for your, from your pastor. That, I mean, that was 1920s, 100 years ago. And though we have come quite a way, there is still underpinnings that are there. There's still fractions and divisions amongst us. There's still prejudice and arrogance and divide that is there amongst us. And man, even if you go within our church, not even just politically or ethnically or socioeconomically, look at 
just theologically, not just talking about the number of denominations, but even within this body right here, depending on where you land and your view of the spiritual gifts, particularly sign gifts, can create some division if we're not careful. It, uh, depending on your view of eschatology, eschatology is the study of end times, that your interpretation of how you see the details playing out and whether there's a literal millennial kingdom or there's not, or whether there's, you're going to join with Kirk Cameron and Nicholas Cage on pre-trib rapture, uh, or, or whether you're going to believe there is no rapture on the pre-trib and it's at the end, or, or whether you're just no millennial or, or pre-millennial, wherever you're going to land, there are opportunities for division amongst us on a number of areas. And that's not even getting into the practical preferences within the church of our own desires and convictions and opinions of how church should be run, of what type of philosophies and what, what age group or demographic should be emphasized or not emphasized. I mean, there are so many fractures around us that if we're not careful, these become the very things that can split us. And truth be known, I know for a fact there are folks in this room right now who have gone through the pain of a church split. Some of y'all have experienced that. And there is a deep wound. I talked to a family today that had been a part of church for 29 years and the church just split. And the pain and the, the woundedness that comes from that of can I even trust the local church anymore? I mean, all of these things prove to us that the life that we live, even the churches where we belong to, they, they can be difficult. It can be, life can be hard because of some of these fractures, but praise God that he has found a better way for us, that he, our God has laid out a plan that is intended to bring about the reconciliation of the entire world that is found in himself. And, uh, and we're going to see this most clearly today in the book of Ephesians of what it looks like to be a unified church that is also very diverse and how those two things can possibly coexist right here in the book of Ephesians. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul who penned this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his kind of MO and all the letters he's written, whether it's Philippians, whether it's Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, you name it, Paul typically has a structure to his letters. They always begin in the indicative and then they move to the imperative. If you failed English like I did, he starts with the doctrinal and then he moves to the practical. He starts with belief and then moves to behavior. But when the Apostle Paul does this, they're never two disassociated things. His instruction of the practicalities of our Christian faith always stem from the doctrinal, always stem from the belief portion. And it's interesting because once we get to chapter four, the divide in Ephesians is one through three and then four through six. And four through six has a lot of practicals for how we're to live the Christian life and we'll begin with the issue of unity. But if you notice the very first word in Ephesians chapter four, the first phrase there is therefore. And if you've ever done Bible study methods, whenever you see the word therefore, you always have to ask, what is it therefore? And it's because of something that has preceded it that will give meaning to what comes after. What precedes chapter four, verse one is one through chapters one through three. It's where Paul lays out the theological foundations for what God is up to in the world to bring all this brokenness and all this fractured humanity into wholeness through Jesus Christ. 
Chapter one of Ephesians, Paul lays out the argument that God has a plan to reconcile the whole world together in Christ, to undo the brokenness and bring it into wholeness. Chapter two, he says that God has begun this work by first reconciling Jew and Gentile into one new man, not two separate anymore that have hostility and are opposed, but one new man called the church. And then chapter three, what Paul lays out is that the reason, the purpose that God has unified in perfecting, bringing together this one new man is ultimately so that this church will display to the rest of the world that only Jesus Christ is the one who is qualified to bring true unity to our brokenness, true reconciliation to our brokenness, only Jesus Christ. And so therefore, in light of chapter one through three, Paul comes out with the exhortation that I, I urge you as this church, as this new man, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner that's worthy of chapters one through three. Because chapters one through three is true, then live in such a way that displays to the world that it is true. But here's the problem. The fact is, is that it's possible to distort that truth. It doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't take away the truth of what God has done but we have a chance to distort it. Paul says walk in a manner that's worthy of it in order to display it. That word worthy in the Greek is the word axios, which means we get the words axis or axle. It means balance. It's like your axle balances your car, your tires, your wheels. In the same way, we might also use the word equal to, to find someone that says they have found a worthy cause. It means they have found something that equals their passions, found something that equals who they believe they are. And in this context here, walking in a manner worthy of your calling is saying as the church, this new creation, this new man, live in such a way that is consistent with the unification that Christ has already given you through the cross. This is what he's saying right out of the gate. And again, which indicates the opposite, that it's possible by the way that we live, that we might actually be distorting the truth of what Christ has done on the cross. I remember a visceral illustration of this, of how it's possible to uh, act not in accordance with your identity. And when I was in college, one of the things I loved doing, I loved playing basketball. I wasn't good enough to make the big leagues, but I had a seven-year run in intramurals. It's beautiful. Seven years in undergrad. I highly don't recommend that. But I played... Seven years, loved it, played basketball the whole way through. And one of my saddest days was when I graduated because I was no longer qualified to play UNT intramurals anymore. My roommate at the time thought he would pay a tribute to me, though. He decided that next fall that he was going to form a basketball team in my honor and call them the Sumlin Boys. Went out and got jerseys for all of them. Showed me the jersey, had my name on the back, Sumlin, on every single jersey. And I thought, oh, man, that's cool. That's, that's sweet of you. And so invited me to the first game. So I go. This time I can't play. So I'm up in the bleachers. I'm up in this upper level at UNT. And I'm looking down on the court. And they introduce the Sumlin boys. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And here they come out on the court. They're doing their drills. Everything's great. Game starts. 
off to a good start, and then somebody on the team decides to do something that you weren't allowed to do. In intramural basketball, at least in this day, you could not dunk on somebody. You would get a technical foul. And one of the teammates on the Sumlin boys goes up and dunks on somebody right out of the gate. The ref calls a tee. The guy starts trash talking the guy that he dunks over. Ref calls the tee, pushes the ref. That doesn't go well. The guy that he starts trash talking then takes a swing. He takes a swing back, lands it. Here comes this bench. Oh, and here come all the Sumlin boys. <laughs> and everybody comes out on the court and this thing turns into a mass brawl. I mean, just ripping jerseys, punching people. And the whole time, I'm perched up there looking down with my name on their jerseys. <laughs> you are not acting in congruency with my identity right now. You're making a fool of me. And I went, oh, this is how God must feel <laughs> watching me play for him with his name on my jersey. And I'm acting like an idiot. Now, praise God, our God is full of compassion, full of grace, full of mercy, tender towards us and has given us a process that helps transform us so that we, we live for him and not for ourselves. But in that moment is a very clear illustration of what it means to live incongruent with the identity that you have. And so here Paul likewise says, God's calling for the church is to show in us to the rest of the world how Christ is the one who's uniquely qualified to bring us together, to undo the very divisions that sin has caused. And the way that we come together as a church displays this to the rest of the world about the power of the gospel in us. And so simply put, Northway Church, man, we get the privilege of getting to testify to the reconciling power of Jesus Christ on the cross and how it has brought a diverse people together in a way like nothing else can. Now, I want you to notice something specific about our role in this unity. And you see this in verse three. We'll come back to verse two, but look at verse three. He says, just as he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, be eager to do this by maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to note something very important about verse 3. Nowhere in that verse does it command the church to create unity. Nowhere in that verse does it command us to attain unity. Nowhere in that verse does it say, hey, you need to look to the world for their definitions of unity and you need to borrow that so you can have it here so we can implement it. Nowhere in the scripture does it command the church to create unity. Why? Because we already have it. We have it in Jesus Christ. He simply says our role is to preserve what we already have, to maintain the unity, to protect this unity. Since God has already inaugurated a plan to unite all things together in Christ Jesus, chapter one, and since he has begun by uniting two hostile parties, Jew and Gentile together to form one new man, the church, and has given us this reconciling unity through the cross, therefore we are urged to make every effort to maintain or preserve or protect the unity that we've already been given in Jesus. And make note of the exact language here. He doesn't say we're to maintain a spirit of unity, lower S. 
No, he, he says rather we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who has united us together in Christ. This was Paul's language earlier in chapter 2. Listen to this from 2.22. In him, that is Jesus, you also, and that's in the plural, Jew and Gentile, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That phrase right there, built together, corresponds in here in chapter 4, verse 3, to the Spirit's work of bonding us together. It's the imagery of the Holy Spirit using a type of glue that has the ability to hold two different people together, unlike any other glue that you can find in this world. And the glue that he uses, according to that verse, is the peace is the peace that has been purchased for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And again, we saw this earlier in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Listen to these words. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and here's how he did it, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, here's what that's speaking to, that in Jewish law, specifically, we're looking at the civil and ceremonial laws that was setting a bar for God's people as to what was clean and what was unclean, what was holy and what was unholy, and that you don't approach God on your own terms, you approach God on his terms. But what man did in that is they use those laws to basically say it's the Jew who's clean and it's the Gentile who's unclean. It's the Jew who's in and the Gentile who's out. Now, God was never saying that. And so what happens is Jesus now comes along and through his substitutionary work on the cross, through his righteousness that he possessed that we didn't, he exposes the fact that nobody was ever clean. There was never such a thing as a clean Jew and an unclean Gentile. We were all unclean. But to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that haven't approached God by their own works because our works are unclean, but you approach by putting your trust in the work of Jesus who was clean, he now gives us his righteousness and it levels the playing field for all those who come through the cross. And the result, according to this passage here, is after he did this work, it was so that he might now create in himself one new man out of the two. So making peace. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility that existed between us. And notice that last verse in verse 17. He came now and he preached peace to you who are far off, that's the Gentile, and peace to those who are near, that's the Jew. We've been given the peace of Christ. The peace that we now have through Jesus is what the Holy Spirit uses in our salvation to cement us together as a new family. Diverse, yet united. In no way does the unity that Christ has purchased for us mean uniformity. Please don't mistake those two. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. 
God's not trying to create one new ethnicity out there and, and, and this ethnicity's in and this one's not. No, that was how it was played out before. He's trying to create one new man that is united in Christ. Now, that does not strip away our diversity. That's why a lot of people hear this argument so much in progressive liberalism today of this idea of quoting Galatians 3, where Paul says, now there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile. There's no such thing as slave or free. There's no such thing as male or female. And we'll use that in the gender debates going, see, we don't, we don't need male and female. We just need to be this, this kind of middle ground thing. And that's not what that verse is speaking about. The context of that verse is what has been bridged in our justification on the cross. That it's not your maleness that qualifies you to be saved. It's not your femaleness that qualifies you to be saved. It's the blood of Christ. But you are still fully male and you are still fully female under the glory of God. So embrace your diversity while you hold to the unity that is found through the blood of Christ. And so this is ours. No man can create this kind of unity. Only the triune work of God is qualified for this. But I want you to see there in verses four through six, the uniqueness of what it is we're actually trying to preserve. When you think about it for a moment, what does unity actually mean then? If it's not uniformity, what are we striving at? And this is what Paul's gonna do. He's gonna try to cement this idea. Now, the Greek word for unity literally means agreement. It means joining And usually it's in context of the views, affections, and aims that we have in Christ that centers us together. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to take this concept of unity and like a diamond, it's got multiple facets, and he's going to turn each facet. He's going to show you five facets of unity, five facets, but it's all one unity, just showing you a different side of it. The first area, if you notice... The first area of unity that we're called to preserve is our unity in the worship and exaltation of the oneness of God. And we get this from all three verses, actually. Verse four, verse five, verse six. And verse four, one spirit. Verse five, one Lord, Jesus, the Son. Verse six, one God and Father. What do you have present there in those three verses? You have the triune God. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit, all one. We talked about this before, but they're all there. And they exist ultimately for our exaltation and worship of the oneness of God. No longer do you have Jews and Gentiles worshiping their versions of who the God is. It's one triune God who is to be exalted as sovereign and supreme over all. It is what one might call doxological unity. Doxa means the idea of glory and praise. The exaltation of God is one of the central things that we must preserve that we have been given. But secondly, notice there's also a unity that we are to preserve in not just the oneness of God, but the oneness of this body called the church. He says in verse four, one body. Though we are different members, who gather in different locations and congregations, who would have different parts within the body. At the same time, though, don't mistake it, we are still one body. There are not multiple churches. There is one church in Jesus Christ. And so that, therefore, when the saints gather today in Zimbabwe, And saints gather today in Guatemala, and saints gather today in Hong Kong, and the saints gather today in Dallas, Texas. 
These aren't multiple churches. This is one body, and we must contend to preserve for the oneness that God has given us through the cross in Jesus Christ. But not only is there the, the oneness of God and exaltation and the, the oneness of the church that we are to preserve, but also notice thirdly, our unity is to be preserved in the future hope of God's kingdom. He says in verse five, one hope that we are unified by looking forward together with one hope of the final consummation of the promises of Christ that will come true. Chapter one of Ephesians is God has inaugurated a plan to reconcile the whole world together. You can cheat, flip to the back of your Bible and see how it ends. And it's beautiful. You can get to Revelation five and Revelation seven. You can see every tribe, tongue, and nation all around one throne worshiping one God. You can get to Revelation 21 and 22 and you can see the newness of everything that will come where the old will pass away and the new will come where we are worshiping for eternity with this God. And so we, we have this oneness in our, our future hope. Now, though this in this body, we may have different convictions and opinions on the details of how those final events will play out. The truth is we have one hope, one consummation of all things where Christ's work is fully completed without sin, worshiping together for all eternity. And so we can look forward in the same trust that what Christ has begun, he will finish, guaranteed. Fourthly, there's also a unity that we are to preserve, if you keep turning that diamond, of our confession. He says in verse five, one faith that we are to hold to. There are not multiple paths to God. There is one. Jesus said in John 14, six, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. At the center of our one faith is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has justified us. He has forgiven us. He has cleansed us. He has adopted us, reconciled us through faith alone, in him alone, by grace alone. Jude calls this the faith once for all handed down to us. Now you need to know there are other secondary and even tertiary, which means three tertiary doctrines, sub-doctrines that matter. They clearly matter in scripture. And in our membership class here at Northway, we try to clearly define where we land on some of those secondary and tertiary um, areas of theology. But let's be clear. There are many churches here in Dallas and across the world who don't agree exactly where we land here at Northway, where our elders land, on our view of baptism and our mode of baptism. There are, there are others who don't agree on our definition and practice of the gifts. There are others who uh, would not agree with our landing place on on the, uh, the design of God for men and women within the church. There are others who will not believe um, where we land on our views of the kingdom or views of even how even some philosophical things that are not beyond tertiary of just how we do church, of why we choose to meet in a gym, you know, which we didn't have much choice on that one. I'm just going to put that out there. But nonetheless, those things matter. They do matter. But there are others who do not hold in those same areas yet are still within the bounds of orthodoxy, who still hold the same confession, 
The same sufficiency in Jesus Christ on the salvation for the forgiveness of sin in him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And they hold to that. And we are still then part of this one faith body. At the end of our day, our doctrinal unity across the board as a church is rooted in a man who raised from the dead for you and I. And it holds us fast. But fifthly, notice there is also are a unity that is to be preserved in what I'll call our equal identification amongst each other, our baptistic unity. He says in verse 5, one baptism. Baptism is a word that simply means to be placed into, to be identified with. This is the work of the Spirit in our salvation when we put our faith in Jesus Christ of then transferring us into his life, into Jesus's life burial, death, resurrection. In other words, what is true of Jesus is true of those who've put their faith in him. Since he died for our sins on the cross, we too have died to our sins with Jesus. The old us has been crucified with him. And just as he raised from the grave, so too we have been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. This spiritual reality is what we're signifying when we step into the physical waters of baptism, just like we saw last week. The baptisms we saw last week. Now, that wasn't our salvation. That was somebody testifying physically to the spiritual reality of what's already happened, that when they stepped into that water, they represent their old selves. This is who I was before Jesus. But I have put my faith in him, and therefore I've been buried with him. And I have been raised now to walk in the newness of life. And we're testifying to that baptism. And in this baptism, we're not only baptized into Christ, But because this is Christ's body, this is a family, we've been baptized into this body as well. Christ's body, which is significant because that that one baptism in our transfer to Jesus through faith alone in Jesus becomes the front door by which every believer must walk through theologically in their salvation. And the playing field is leveled. And this is why this becomes so important that you remember your baptism. Because your baptism, you were not baptized into your gospel community as much as you may love that group. You were not baptized in your women's Bible class as much as you must love that ministry. You were not baptized into your spiritual gifts as your identity alone. You were not baptized into your view of the millennial kingdom that you hold to as opposed to somebody else. You were not baptized into your wealth. You were not baptized into your skin color or your ethnicity. You were not baptized into your gender. You were not baptized as a Republican or a Democrat. You were baptized into a body whose head is Jesus Christ. And that is our ultimate unity. It is our ultimate confession of identity. And this unity isn't just thicker than blood. It has been purchased by blood the blood of Christ, which is why you cannot find a unity like this anywhere else in the world. Go play on your sports teams. Go be a part of your clubs. Go be a part of those vocational work trades. Go be a part of whatever community you're part of that has diversity in it and feels like you're unified. There's not a unity like this because this one has been bought by Jesus for you. And this is one that has been secured for us. I'll tell you what, man, a few weeks ago, I watched the Grammys like a lot of y'all. Alicia Keys, she came out of the gate strong. That was the day that 
That was the day that Kobe died. There's a lot of suffering going on, just a shock over it. Of course, as the Grammys open up, they, they wanted to come out strong of just kind of unifying everybody in the room. And man, she wrote an incredible song and preached on unity. And it was, it was really, it was beautiful, but it was just so tragically short of what true unity could be. Because at the end of the day, she said, man, what brings the world together is music. And I thought, well, one, I know music divides a lot of people, but two, even in this moment, <laughs> at best, that song's going to last three to five minutes. That Grammys is going to last a few hours. But we're talking about a unity here that will last for eternity. There's not a unity like this. The question then becomes, how do we preserve it? If it's already been given to us, but yet there exists so many divisions amongst us. We're such a different people who constantly have the opportunity to unfortunately, rather than displaying this unity, actually distort the image of it. How do we live in such a way that, that walks in a manner worthy of this calling of unity? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul tells us in verse 2. Remember that verse we skipped? Let's finish with this one. Paul's going to give us four attitudes that are going to help us hold fast to our unity and also walk patiently with our diversity from those who are different than us. The first thing that he says, and really these are two aspects that are coupled together, humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another in love. When you look at the first two attitudes, humility and gentleness, humility, the Greek word for humility, it means lowliness of mind. It's not thinking of yourself as better than you are. In Greek culture, humility was a vice. It actually was not a virtue. Do you know that? Greco-Roman culture only prideful people were esteemed. The, hum the humble, they were deemed as weak, but yet Christ proved it was anything but that. You listen to this in Philippians chapter two as Paul describes the humility of Christ. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about those words for just a moment. Here is Jesus Christ, part of the triune Godhead in heaven, perfectly diverse and perfectly unified just chilling with each other, enjoying sweet eternal fellowship as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, while there is a fractured humanity over here who has no way of joining them. And so the question comes, who's, who's going for him? Jesus could have in this moment been filled with entitlement and went, I'm God, I'm not going down there with them. I'm hanging up here. I don't want to disrupt this. I, I want to enjoy this, you know? And, but instead he said, no, I'll go. He did not consider equality with God in the form of this triune Godhead, though he did not cease being God. He didn't regard staying in that form as something he had to hold on to, but he actually emptied himself. He took on the form of flesh and he went and served the very people that hated him, the very people who were different than him. And he served them so much that it was a self-sacrificial serving that all the way went to his death so that 
in his lowly estate, he might be able to raise up in exaltation and bring us in exaltation with him. Like that is humility. And that's why Paul says in the same chapter in Philippians 2, to us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. We got to rid ourselves of entitlement so that we can join with those who are different around us. When he combines that though with gentleness, which is also an interesting word, the Greek word for gentleness is meekness, which again, Greek culture regarded in a negative way, used to characterize the poor and the oppressed as weak people. But a close study of the word shows it's anything but weakness because the word meek is often used when describing a horse that has become bridled. Something so powerful, but chooses to come under its own constraint. Jesus was meek when he went to the cross. He could have called down thunder on the Romans. He could have taken out the Jewish leaders, but he came under constraint for a higher purpose, for their good. Preserving unity in the church requires someone strong enough to not have their ideas always win. Someone strong enough to not have to be defensive every time and retaliate to those who they don't like. I think about the journey we've been on, I've been on as an individual and our church has been on just there's so many areas we could talk about of, of diversity around us and, and anchoring in our unity, but one of the clear ones that's in our culture so frequently and so, um, so importantly is that of racial harmony. And this has been a journey for me. It's a journey for our church. And I gotta tell you, here at Northway Church, you need to know our elders are committed to embracing and celebrating diversity. We long to see us become a more diverse church that is in keeping with a cross-section of who Dallas is around us. And the, particularly the church of God that's around us and that we long to have um, a place where there's representation of all those who are believers in our community. And so we wanna see our really white pasty elder board become a little bit more colored. We'd love for that. We, we wanna see our body more diverse and, and its leadership and in its gifts. And we wanna see this play out because we, we long that this would be a place of a city within a city, like Augustine talked about, the city of God amidst the city of man, where someone in Dallas could come into this place and go, man, only God could do this. Like we long for that kind of diversity. But what I've learned along the way, both in church and just as an individual, is oftentimes diversity and unity, these are a hard thing to walk by because there's so many layers of division that separate us. Some of it's just outside of our control. Some of it may be a total concentration in a geography that's all one majority ethnicity with no other options around. I've worshiped in Sudan and believe me, they're not having racial reconciliation talks about how to get more white people in church because there are none. They're not around there. And so sometimes geography plays into that, but most times it's more prejudice and sin and even ignorance that bleeds into our lack of diversity. And it becomes an understanding. There is a need for humility and gentleness for the majority ethnicity to really pay attention to the cries and the, the perspectives 
of the minorities amongst us if we're truly to be a unified church that's diverse. And for me, again, this has been a journey. I remember I have a vivid memory in sixth or seventh grade getting done playing basketball, all cut up. We went to an Eckerd's, which I believe is now CVS or something like that, Walgreens, and uh, went in there to get a Band-Aid and be in there with my African-American friend and seeing the term on the Band-Aid can that said flesh-colored Band-Aids. And him going, well, that ain't my flesh. And going, man, my whole life I've been buying Band-Aids. I never saw that. I was blind to it. I was privileged to it. I just couldn't see it. I didn't, I didn't have a category. Somebody else would see that and go, well, that's not my skin. Now, to be fair, I'm so white, I'm actually translucent. It wasn't really my, my flesh either. But nonetheless, there was a sense in which I learned for the very first time, there are people around me who don't see the same world that I see. And I go, man, that's just, that's not even fair. That's not even right. I remember years later, uh, just when I was in Fresno, I remember we had uh, some of our church that were doing a chapel for the Fresno State football team and being in the locker room and asking those football players in there, how many, how many of my white friends have ever been pulled over in a neighborhood for no reason at all by a police officer? And just literally no hands going up. And then how many of my African-American brothers in here have, my brothers in here have, have ever experienced being pulled over for no reason at all and all the hands went up? And I went, I don't even have a category for that. And I realized for me, when I began, and I could, we could go into systemic issues in our culture and issues of redlining and other things that have formed kind of the underlays of our, our divisions in our city around us. But I, I got to tell you something. What I have learned from the scriptures, from being a child of God, is that the way to enter into these conversations is not with pride, arrogance, and defensiveness. It is with humility and gentleness to seek to understand that which I may not understand so that I can be a greater advocate within the body of Christ for equal footing of brothers and sisters from all different ethnicities. And we can go on and on, but I gotta tell you, we have provided some resources in the back that maybe can help a majority population even take some steps forward in understanding some of those blind spots or ignorances or just some of the language we're even talking about up here that can be a great resource. Before you leave, there's a table in the back. Tracy, hold up your hand. We got resources back there. Stop and grab a sheet on the way out. Sign up for next steps and opportunities of classes and, and books that we'd recommend, things like that, that can be of great resource in that area. But we must approach with humility and gentleness. And let me hit these last two because we're way out of time. But um, patience and bearing with one another in love. The Greek word for patience means long pain, literally. Long suffering is what we would say, meaning that we are willing to keep loving a difficult person through a difficult circumstance, even if it means our enduring the pain for a long time to do so. Preserving unity requires not always defining reality by whatever is happening in a particular moment, but instead having an awareness of God's ultimate future plan and therefore allowing us to play the long game with this person or this circumstance, knowing that God has a plan to bring this to a perfect end one day. And I think in that regard, the bearing with one another in love flows out of patience. It means the idea of forbearance or tolerance, literally putting up with one another. Preserving unity in the church includes bearing with one another as we are all in process, every one of us in this room. We don't give up on each other because Christ didn't give up on us. He promised to love us to the very end. And that means we're going to have to get good, y'all, at doing something that's not easy for us, and that's working through conflict. 
part of this is we just don't know how to work through conflict. Many of us have come through homes where there's typically one of three harmful ways to deal with conflict that we've been discipled in. Either inward, outward, or backward. Inward, some tension revolves, and so we don't, we don't want to deal with it. It's too awkward, so we just stuff it. I'll pretend it didn't happen. I'll just hold it here inside, and let's just move on like nothing happened. Anybody been in those kind of homes? That was tension there. Outward is, oh no, you, you got beef with me? I got beef with you? Oh, I'm going to vent and spew my anger on you right now, and I'm going to explode. I'm not going to stuff it in. I'm going to let it out, and I'm going to give you what for because I'm going to hold fast to my entitlement and my pride, and I'm right and you're wrong, and I'm going to come at you. Or it's backward. It's just, you know what? This is too painful. This is too hard. I'm just going to run. And I'm going to, I'm going to retreat, and I'm going to go find the place where it's comfortable, and I don't ever have to deal with tension. Now, some of us came from special families where all three were practiced at the same time. But the family of God, we have been given a better way. And that is upward and forward. That when tension arises, we go to the Lord first and we grab his peace and his counsel and his wisdom. And then we engage the tension out of love. And we seek reconciliation with our brother or sister so that we don't distort the unity that Christ has given us, but we actually display it through intentional sacrifice. This is what Jesus was after and and the Gospel of Matthew talks about in different places. If, if, you, if you're at the altar and find out that your brother has something against you, you need to go to him. Or if you have something against your brother, you need to go to him. Like we don't, we don't just wait around or bury it or pretend it didn't happen. No, we actually go engage because that's what the body of Christ does. That's what true love does for the spirit of reconciliation. And we run to each other. I've had an internal rule that I've practiced for years with many of my staffs, and that is if somebody comes to me gossiping about somebody else, slandering somebody else, I simply look at them and go, all right, you've got 24 hours now to go schedule a meeting with that person. Oh, and if you don't schedule in the next 24 hours, I'm going to schedule it for you because we're not going to let this foster into bitterness. Bitterness is like an octopus. Its tentacles get into everything and it will divide us. No, we're going to go confront it out of love. Why? Because we're the family of God. All these qualities, by the way, in verse 2, they're not passive, they're active, which assumes that every single member of Christ's body is participating in these attitudes. Why? Because this is what displays to the world God's ultimate plan and wisdom behind the gospel. Listen to these words from Jesus that he prayed for us in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The greatest way we will display our calling of unity and reconciliation is by preserving this unity of confession in Christ and engaging and celebrating our diversity with humility, with gentleness, with patience, and with bearing with one another in love. Until that day comes when we'll take this dim mirror and we will see it fully clear. So here's what I'd love to do. I would love to do one thing that I think, we do it every week, 
but I think becomes one of the most visceral and visible pictures of what our unity in the church looks like, and that is communion. And don't miss this. Communion, where you can live on the east side or you can live on the west side and you still got a seat at the table. Communion, where you may be of a darker skin color and a lighter skin color and you still have a seat at the table. You may come from wealth or poverty. You may work and have a ton of influence and platform or no influence at all. And the le- ground has been leveled because of the blood of Christ on the cross. And we come together as one. And so if you're a member helping with communion, I'd love for you to head to the back, grab the elements, begin passing those out. And let me just say this. If there's one area in this meal where there would be disunity, that would be if your confession is not in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've come to this place and you've yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, one, we want you to know we're so glad you're here. We want you to come and have freedom to ask hard questions and consider the claims of the person of work of Jesus. But if you're not there yet, if you have yet to transfer your trust to Jesus, we'd ask you to hold off on this meal because this meal is signifying a reality that has already happened. And if that's not true of you, that would be disingenuous. And so for the believers in this room, this becomes an opportunity for us to remember the oneness that we've received in Christ and the oneness of the cross that has brought us together and that we might celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so take a couple of minutes here, church. Think about your salvation that Christ has purchased for you, both individually as well as how it has unified us corporately. Thank him for that. And then we'll come together. We'll take this together here in just a moment.